Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. I think this is going to be a meaningful podcast. And when I say meaningful, I don't mean it's going to have some sort of meaningful impact on your life and that you will walk away more fulfilled emotionally as a human being. Although, You never know. We could go in that direction. I mean, I think it's going to be thick, you know, like just the right amount of thick, good kind of thick, might be a little heavy, might be a little big, might be a little long. So we're going to dive right into it. It is never more important, never to know ball or consume information from people who know ball than when your team is struggling. When the team is doing well, there's really not a lot of harm in using bad data, misidentifying things, because you're not actually searching for a solution to a problem because you're less likely to be looking for problems. It is never more important to know ball or to consume stuff from people who know ball than when your team is struggling. Why? Because when you're struggling, you're searching for answers. And in order to get answers, you need to be able to correctly identify the problem. And what you have seen going around social media, the internet, message boards, the water cooler, your friends who are Bills fans, is a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about what is wrong, about identifying the problem. One of the reasons why I did a podcast two weeks ago that was focused on inclusive criticism is because you're more likely to catch whatever it is that's correct if you're willing to say and. If you're willing to say, yeah, that and this. But instead we get super siloed. It's this thing. If we just press this one button. We know it's not like that. We know that football is not like that. That's not how football works. We're not playing tennis. This is one of the most complicated team sports ever made. And because of that, it's really important that you either know ball or you consume stuff from people who know ball. Which means if you listen to this and you think I don't know ball, then don't listen to me because I'm steering you in a bad direction and I don't want to do that. Now, I like to think I know enough ball. And that's the key. Enough ball. Because nobody knows all the ball, right? Let's be honest. Professionals don't know all the ball. But knowing enough to be able to do it. There are plenty of people who watch all 22 and still can't come away with the right solution or the right problem. Because they don't know how to interpret what it is that they're watching. But I want you to be really, really specific about what you consume. But here's what we do. We have priors and we allow our priors to shape what we consume because we only want to consume the things that line up with our priors. If you are screaming 
at Deion Dawkins and think Deion Dawkins is terrible, you are going to gravitate toward whatever content you can that tells you that Deion Dawkins is terrible. And that's a problem. That is an issue in discourse and discussion and problem solving, specifically as it relates to sports fandom. We seek out and consume content that validates our priors. That's not healthy. We shouldn't do this. We usually do it because anger doesn't really cohabitate well with open-mindedness. How many people that you know that are super angry and also really open to other points of view? Like, that's not a thing. Why? Those two things correlate. The angrier you are, the more closed-minded you become. This is true in sports. It's true in all aspects of life. The angrier you are, the more closed-minded you become. So really, the anger is actually stopping you from being able to consume the correct content because you're only ever going to consume the content that then reinforces your own anger. So the best way to leave yourself open to the idea that you could consume other content is by taking a deep breath and realizing it's sports. But it's never more important. The vibes are bad right now around the Buffalo Bills. The vibes are, are not great. And when the vibes are not great, people start lashing out. They start flailing. It is never more important to lock in and focus than at that time. At this time. So that's my encouragement. Lock in. Focus. Make sure either you know ball or you're listening to people who do and be honest about that. A couple weeks ago, I outlined six things that I wanted to see the Buffalo Bills do differently moving forward that I thought would help the team. We're going to go ahead and revisit those six things and check in to see how the Buffalo Bills have been doing on these things. Here are the six items that were on that list. One, stop screwing up pre-snap and pressure stuff, Josh Allen. Two, play with more pace on offense. Three, throw the ball more. Four, play Eli Anku at one tech and search for a trade there. Five, more three safety looks to adjust for concerns at linebacker. Search for a trade there. Six, Dalton Kincaid second in targets moving forward. Let's go back. One, stop screwing up pre-snap and pressure stuff, Allen. Better. I think that two weeks ago, the All-22 was far less kind to Josh Allen when it comes to pre-snap and pressure stuff than before. So I think that's improving. Two, Play with more pace on offense. I thought we saw a little bit of it at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game and then a little just a dabble of it, but it, we're, we're still not there. We're still not where I want to be when it comes to pace. Three, throw the ball more. Yes, the Buffalo Bills have been throwing the ball more. Four, play Eli Anku at one tech, search for a trade there. No, they're not playing them. Now, he, they did sign a one tech. So that, that kind of counts here partially. So signing Linval Joseph matters and I want him to play more snaps because the entire idea behind this is I didn't want to see Jordan Phillips at one tech and I still saw Jordan Phillips at one tech far more than I want to. So this one is kind of up in the air. Five, more three safety looks to adjust for concerns at linebacker search for a trade. Yes, we've seen more three safety looks. I think that's good. Six, Dalton Kincaid second in targets moving forward. Yes, and that's been going very well. We'll talk about Dalton Kincaid later. So of the six things that I outlined that I wanted to see more of for the Buffalo Bills moving forward, we got 
some of it. We didn't get all of it, but we got some of it. We got a little here, a little there. They're not playing with more pace on O when it comes to consistency. Allen's gotten better at the pre-snap and pressure stuff, which was bad a couple weeks ago. They didn't play Anku at one tech, but they did sign somebody else. Now I just need to see them play him more. We got more three safety looks. Dalton Kincaid is getting more targets. They are throwing the ball more. So partially, it's like a C when it comes to doing the things that I wanted them to do a couple weeks ago. But yet still, the offense is leaving meat on the bone. But you are looking around at some advanced metrics and going, I don't understand. Bruce EPA per play. Bruce DVOA. And this is causing a lot of friction in the community because there's disjointed nature of analytics and what your eyes are telling you. And this has always been a conflict. It's I trust my eyes more than the analytics. And I'm here to tell you that the analytics are correct if you know what you're looking at. And I've said this a million times. We get way too comfortable using a single analytic that is intended to be holistic as an end-all and be-all. We get way too comfortable. Why do you think I invented QB stew? It's because I don't think that there is a single measure of quarterback play that is effective. I joked around with Aaron Quinn. I was make, making a, a comment to him. I said, I think I need to come up with an offensive stew. Like a, a list of offensive specific team metrics so we can get a more holistic look at this. Because what we do is we see DVOA and we go, that's not right. We see EPA per play and we go, that's not right. That doesn't match what my eyes are telling me. And I'm here to tell you, you're right. Because you got to understand what it's actually measuring. If you understand how it actually works from a logical standpoint, then you'll know where the flaws are and you'll know where there can be discrepancy between what you're seeing and what it's telling you. For example, why is DVOA so high? Did you know that DVOA is based on a foundation of success rate? The base factor that DVOA is then built upon with things like adjusting for opponent and adjusting for touchdowns, things like that. All that stuff happens on a base of success rate. Reminder, success rate is a binary. Every play, it's was it a success or was it not a success? And then that's so you have total number of plays divided by number of plays that were success Boom, success rate. If you have a 55% success rate, it means 55% of your plays were deemed to be excess, a success. Now, what's a success? A success is based on yardage and whether or not it was achieved relative to the first down marker. I'll give you an example. A play is a success if it gains 40% of the yards needed on first down, 60% of the yards needed on second down, and 100% of the yards needed on third or fourth down. If you run a first down play and it gets four yards, that's considered successful. That's a success, getting four yards in first and 10. If you are second and five, you need 60% of the yards, which means you need to get three yards on second and five in order for that to be successful. And then on third and fourth down, you have to get the first down in order for it to be successful. Did you know the DVOA is built on that foundation? All the other stuff is ads. It's all the stuff that they add to it. But it's based and built on success rate. So DVOA takes that 
And then it adjusts for, okay, well, how well are you as a team successful in that situation versus another team successful in that situation? And then what about versus that same opponent in that situation? But it's all about success rate. It starts from that. The Buffalo Bills are really high in success rate this year. And the Bills have the highest success rate in the NFL. So if they have the highest success rate in the NFL, they're going to have a really high DVOA because that's the foundational piece. That's why their DVOA is high because the thing that DVOA is built on is success rate. And the Bills have the highest success rate in football right now. Why on earth is EPA per play so high? Why is EPA per play so high? I keep seeing these things, Bruce. DVOA is high. EPA per play is high. Why are these things high? Well, we talked about DVOA. Now we're going to talk about EPA per play. It's that second part. Per play. I want to frame this appropriately for you. The Bills are really good in DVOA. They're really good in success rate. They're really good in EPA per play. 78% of their set of downs have resulted in another set of downs or a touchdown. That's good for third. They're moving the ball. They're moving the ball. Now, this is important. I want you to close your eyes for a second and just, unless you're driving or doing something dangerous, don't do that. Close your eyes for a second. Go, okay. Now, the Bills offense, it's not good enough. I know that. Are they moving the ball? Does it feel like they're moving the ball? I think you're going to say the answer is yes. They're moving the ball. They're just not scoring enough points. What you are describing is one of the reasons why EPA per play is high, DVOA is high, success rate is high, and you're worried about the offense. They're not trying to tell you the offense is great. They're trying to tell you the offense is good at moving the ball, which they are. But I'd like to point out something. Yards per pass on Twitter at Yards Per Pass brought this up. I was looking up some information and I saw his tweets on it. I was like, oh, okay, well, there you, there you go. He, he, he got it for me. In the past five weeks, the Bills offense has had 51 drives. Of those 51, four of them have started past the Bills' own 35-yard line. The results of those drives were a missed field goal at the end of the New York Giants game, a missed fourth down, and two touchdowns. In the first four weeks of the season, the Bills had 12 drives that started past their own 35. So they're getting the ball, on average, farther away from their intended goal, which is the goal line. But in addition to that, they're not getting explosive plays. Josh Allen has a boom percentage, which is an explosive play rate. It's 21.1%, which is tied for his lowest in the last four seasons. Adam from Cover One was nice enough to, to bring this up. You're not seeing the explosive plays. So what needs to happen is you are farther away from your goal and you're not getting explosive plays, which means you need more plays in order to get there. And if you need more plays in order to get there, now it increases your chance that something's going to go wrong and stall a drive. We have talked about this a ton on this podcast, and I want you to remember it. The NFL is not built for offenses to run 9, 10, 12 play drives. 
Defenses want to try to get you to do that because they know eventually you're going to screw up. Even if your offense is efficient, even if you're doing everything right, there's going to be a sack. There's going to be a penalty. There's going to be something that happens that puts you off and you need the explosive plays to offset the negative plays. For defense, it's about not letting the offense get explosive offensive plays and trying to generate explosive negative plays for yourself. The Buffalo Bills are moving the ball, but it requires so many plays in order to get to the end zone because they're starting farther behind and they're not getting explosive plays. They're not getting these chunk plays, which means now in order to get a touchdown, they need 13 plays, not six. And if you have to tell 11 human beings to do everything perfectly for 11 plays, that's harder than having them do it for six plays, which means now you run into more execution errors. You run into more execution errors because you have more plays. They're not lying to you. EPA per play, DVOA, success rate, none of them are lying to you. You're just misinterpreting what they're telling you. Normally, teams that move the ball the best do have the best offenses, which is why the overwhelming majority of the time, there's a correlation between your eye test and what these things are telling you. But this time there's not. And the reason is that because they're not telling you the offense is good. They're telling you the offense is good at moving the ball. And they are good at moving the ball but they're being required to move the ball farther and take more plays to do it because they're starting farther back and they're not getting explosive plays. And when you start farther back and you don't get explosive plays, it takes longer. When it takes longer, it increases your probability that a single execution mistake is going to derail the drive. And we see that on film all the time. A missed block by Deion Dawkins. A drop pass. Josh Allen makes a bad read over and over and over again. These execution errors happen. And guess what? These execution errors happened when the offense was doing well. But we had explosive plays to make up for it. Do you remember how many times in 2020, 2021, and 2022, and all the times when we were in third and 13 and we were like, it's fine. Josh Allen's got this. The offense has got this. You remember that? Subjectively, anecdotally, do you remember this? You probably do because you knew there was an explosive play coming. You knew you could generate those. This is the diagnosis from Bruce as to what's happening with the offense. Why is there a discrepancy? Why can I not reconcile in my head the idea that the advanced analytics say that this offense is good and I think the offense is bad? It's because they're not saying the offense is good. They're saying the offense is good at moving the ball, which is not the same. The goal is not to move the ball. The goal is score points. Now, historically, there's a correlation between moving the ball and scoring the points, but there's not with the Buffalo Bills. Why? Because they're going farther. They need to go farther. This is the whole complimentary football thing that Sean McDermott is talking about. It's not just nonsensical stuff that he's saying. I have plenty of criticisms for Sean McDermott. The complimentary football thing, it's a real thing. Part of it's average drive start. And if the average drive start is terrible, you're putting more pressure on your offense And you're not getting explosive plays from your offense, which means now you need to run more plays to get a touchdown. And when you have to run more plays to get a touchdown, you are increasing the possibility of human error every single time you run a play. If I can score a drive in one play, if I can get a touchdown in one play, I want to do it. Why? 
because I, I don't want to increase the probability of error. And every single time I run a play, I am increasing the probability of error. And offensive errors can kill drives. And those are real. Execution errors are real. They happen. But this is the reason why it doesn't match up. Because we need to understand what they're telling us. What they're telling us is not wrong. It's just we're misinterpreting what it is they're saying. Quick side note, when it comes to generating explosive plays, I know nobody wants to hear this. The Bills generate more explosive plays out of 12 personnel than they do out of 11. Why? Because adding a second tight end typically brings someone down into the box. And when you bring someone down to the box, you can get behind them for more explosive plays. So you might want to hear that. So the Buffalo Bills on offense, my main focus is how can they generate explosive plays? And part of that is on Ken Dorsey. I understand that you're getting a lot of too high shells. I understand that people are playing Josh Allen differently than the way they used to. But I want to talk you through a little bit of Ken Dorsey's offense. Had a conversation with a guy on social media about route concepts. And I realized that we've never had this conversation. Now, I try to avoid really, really heavy X's and O's on the show because audio is not the best format to do that. But I'm going to do my best to try and do this. Are you familiar with what a decision chart is? If any of you have ever seen a decision chart, some people call them decision trees. It's usually a box that has a question in it. And then outside that box, there's two lines, one going one direction and one going another one. One of those lines says yes, one of those lines says no. And each one of them goes to their own box. And then each one of those boxes has their own question, which each has two lines coming out from that, yes or no, or some sort of answer. The point is that it creates a very structured decision tree. I call it a decision tree or a decision chart. This is the way a lot of my brain functions. So if I ever sound like I'm going, dit, 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 that's the reason why. That's the way that I think. A big portion of Ken Dorsey's offense and a big portion of the overwhelming majority of offenses in the NFL are decision trees. When it comes to passing concepts, it'll be man or zone. If zone, look here. If man, look here. Now, let's say it's zone. Okay, if zone, look here. Great, I look at the correct concept. So let's say, if it's zone, I'm going to start my progression on the left-hand side. And on that left-hand side, I'm going to have a two-man route. I'm going to have a levels concept. A levels concept is an in route from the outside receiver and then a, an over or a slant from the slot receiver. So you end up with both in the quarterback's eye line, but at different elevations, different depths. So you could end up with the outside receiver, Stephon Diggs, right? He's at five yards depth running in. And then you have Dalton Kincaid, who's at 12 yards depth running in. You have a levels concept there. So, if man, look here. If zone, look to your left. You look to your left, now you have another binary. Diggs or Kincaid. And usually that's based on a specific defender. If the defender crashes on Diggs, I throw to Kincaid. If he sinks and goes after Kincaid's route, tries to cap that route or cut it off, then I go to Diggs. Do you see what I mean when it comes to binaries? 
If zone do this, now look over here. Great. If the defender does this, you do this. If the defender does the other thing, you do the other thing. That's a progression decision chart structure of how quarterbacks progress. When you say progressions, right? For a lot of concepts, this is what we're talking about. If man, look here. If zone, look here. Oh, it's zone? Great. Now you're looking over here. First decision's been made. Now it's the second decision. Does this defender sink or does this defender crash? If they crash, go to this receiver. If they sink, go to this receiver. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. There's a rhythm. There's a structure to it. And that's great. That is an efficient way of generating offense and a huge part of NFL passing concepts are built exactly like this all the time. This is not uncommon. When you are watching football, watch for it. If you just slow it down, it's not crazy. It's if this, then this. Okay, this, great. Now, if it's this, do this. If it's this, do this. It's a nice, slow structure if you just break it down. It's not actually that frantic. But being able to make those decisions where 300-pound linemen are trying to kill you is one of the reasons why playing quarterback is really difficult. You have to be able to correctly identify man or zone. Then you have to be able to correctly quick twitch, make a judgment on that one defender who we said, if he's going this way, you go that way. If he's going the other way, you go the other way. This is what we're talking about. That's not crazy. But the problem is Ken Dorsey's offense is too much of that. You have to be able to sprinkle in things that are not that. What do I mean when I say sprinkle in things that are not that? Here's what I mean by that. There are specific plays that are designed for one specific guy to get one specific place by scheming up one specific thing. You see a lot of this stuff in the red zone, right? You see a lot of it with pick plays. You see, They're designed to get a specific outcome. You are not negotiating your way through a decision tree. You are saying, this guy's going to go here, this guy's going to go here, and we're doing all of this in service of one potential big explosive play. That's the stuff that's not happening. Those things aren't happening nearly enough. And in my opinion, that's a Dorsey flaw. That's a big Dorsey flaw. You can't say, stop doing those things. That was the conversation I was having with this guy on social media. Well, stop, stop asking Josh Allen to make... No, no, you can't not ask Josh Allen to make those kind of reads. Everybody has to make those kind of reads. They teach you how to do that stuff in college with basic progression systems. There are plenty of quarterbacks in high school who have to do that. You cannot run your entire offense and ignore high-low concepts because Josh Allen might make a wrong call. That's not the answer. The answer isn't run less things that have progression. The answer is run more things that are designed specifically for one purpose to get an explosive play. And if they don't work, Josh, run for it. Go crazy. Do that thing that you do. Sprinkle in more of that, more of the creativity, more of the intended explosives. Because I trust that if we do it and it doesn't work, because let's be honest, it's not going to work a huge chunk of the time. That's the way these things work. You're not always going to get every single thing to go right because they're going to call the perfect play to stop that. You're going to throw scissors and they're going to throw rock. 
And that's going to happen. And you're not going to be able to get the explosive play the way you drew it up. Go backyard at that point. We have Josh Allen. But you can't say, well, don't have him run those other stuff. Every offense runs those other stuff. That's why I get frustrated. Because people are flailing. They, they want to blame Dorsey, but they don't know what they want to blame him for. I know what I want to blame him for. Let's blame him for that. But you can't say, don't ask Josh Allen to make a binary read. You can't play quarterback in the NFL if you can't be, make a binary read. You have to. Sorry. There's no option. You cannot take those out of the playbook. Well, just take those stuff out of the playbook. You can't. Every offense is built around the idea you have to have things to beat specific coverages. What I want is I want more of the creative, explosive shot plays, the tricky, not trick plays like a flea flicker, right? But things with misdirection and things with explosivity built into them because we need the shot plays. We need explosives and we're not getting them. You're not getting them. And so, yes, Josh Allen can make the right decision nine times out of 10. But if that 10th throw is a pick, he's throwing a pick every 10 throws. You can't have that. So I want to run fewer plays. And in order to run fewer plays, I need more explosives. And in order to run more explosives, we can't have the overwhelming majority of our offense be progression efficiency-based. You got to sprinkle in some things that are designed specifically for something big. That's my criticism of Ken Dorsey. But that does not mean that Josh Allen is without it. At all. You can't say, well, every execution error that Josh Allen, you need to be able to read that player. You have to. And Josh Allen needs to do it more consistently. He does. He has to play quarterback better. What you're describing is playing quarterback in the NFL. Correctly identifying man versus zone. And then correctly identifying what that defender is doing and making the correct throw of the right person. It is not absurd that we were asking Josh Allen to do this. That is not absurd. That's my criticism with the offense. That's my line with Ken Dorsey and Josh Allen. I need Dorsey to not have the overwhelming majority of his offense, like almost all of his offense, be efficiency, progression-based. With, well, beat this coverage, beat this coverage, beat this. Yes, That's great. That should always be the chunk of your offense. That should always be the majority of your offense. But it can't be 95% of your offense. It should be like 70% of your offense. But those big plays that we need so badly because you can't run 14 play drives, especially if Josh Allen's going to be making these kind of mistakes, you can't run 14 play drives. You need to run six play drives. We need explosives. So you're going to have to put those in. You're going to have to call him at the right time. And that's a feel thing. It's a play design thing. And it's something Dorsey needs to be better at, in my opinion. I told you it was going to be a long pod. I knew it. I'm 30 minutes in. I'm just taking a break. But, you know, the whole thing. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. I hope that was intelligible. I hope that landed on you. I hope I was clear. I hope that landed as intended. I'll tell you what is absurd. We talked about absurdity before the break. I'm going to tell you what is absurd. Dalton Kincaid. We need to spend more time talking 
about how well Dalton Kincaid has been playing. And I had some people push back on the Dalton Kincaid love that I was showing on social media. And I'm just going to go ahead and just tell you right now a couple things about Dalton Kincaid. If you take right now the top 10 players in the NFL who have 20 or more targets in catch rate, right? What percentage of the time when you throw them the ball, do they catch it? The top 10, all of them are running backs, except for Dalton Kincaid. Rashad White, Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, Antonio Gibson, DeAndre Swift, Isaiah Pacheco, Derrick Henry, Jameer Gibbs, James Cook. Those are the top nine. And then right there at number two is Dalton Kincaid. All running backs, Dalton Kincaid. For those of you who don't know, catch rate is always higher with running backs because the average depth of target is so low. So they're usually checkdowns for running backs. And so the average depth of target is low. And usually the distance between themselves and the nearest defender is historically very high. That's why they're checkdowns, which is why the catch rate is really high. You're throwing it short and it's less contested. It's all running backs and then Dalton Kincaid. When you throw him the ball, he catches it. Almost all the time. 88.9% of the time, to be exact. Which is absurd. You are going to hear that phrase from me quite a lot. I have a feeling it's going to be a branding thing for me. Absurd when it comes to Dalton Kincaid. I want to share some other things when it comes to Dalton Kincaid. Since Dalton Kincaid has become tight end one for the Buffalo Bills... If you were to extrapolate his catch and yardage pace to 17 games, he would have had 130 catches for 1,252 yards and six touchdowns. Just take the last couple of games from Dalton Kincaid, the last three specifically since he's become tight end one, and extrapolate them over 17-game season. In the last three games, it was 23 catches for 221 yards and a touchdown. All of a sudden... That looks insane. One might even say absurd. 130 catches for 1,252 yards and six touchdowns. That is one of the greatest seasons, probably, depending on how you look at it, the greatest tight end statistical season of all time. Because Travis Kelsey has had 1,400-yard seasons, 110-catch seasons. Like that That's a thing. You can make an argument that's in the upper echelon of greatest tight end seasons that has ever existed. Now, I understand that on-pace stats are weird and fluky, especially with a three-game sample size. But remember, three games is a trend. I'm willing to start talking about it now. It's absurd. The NFL is a zone-based league. We've talked about this before. The ability to beat zone coverage as a pass catcher will always be more important than the ability to beat man coverage because you're going to see it more. Beating man coverage is good. You want to to do it by, by far. But the more applicable trait is the ability to beat zone coverage. Dalton Kincaid, as a rookie, halfway through the year, is sixth in the NFL among tight ends in yards per route run against zone coverage. Well, Bruce, they're using him as a receiver. You know, it's not really a fair. Okay, fine. You want to play that game? We'll play that game. If you you counted Kincaid as a first-round wide receiver, Here's how he would stack up next to his 2023 peers. Jordan Addison has 
41 catches for 534 yards. Zay Flower has 45 catches for 472 yards. Dalton Kincaid has 40 catches for 339 yards. Jackson Smith and Jigba has 29 catches for 272 yards. And Quentin Johnston has 12 catches for 114 yards. So he would be third most productive rookie first-round wide receiver. This is where it gets fluky. The two people above him, Zay Flowers has an 83.8% snap count. Jordan Addison has a 76.59% snap count. Dalton Kincaid has a 59.46% snap count. He's keeping up with the best first-round receivers, and he's getting way fewer snaps. Oh, well, you know, he's a receiver. He's played 122 snaps in line. So I need you to wrap your head around this. He's producing like a first-round receiver. He's not playing exclusively in the slaughter out wide, and he's doing it on fewer snaps than the players who have produced more than him. What Kincaid is doing at this stage in his career is insane. It is absurd. And we should be gushing about it, but we're not because we're upset about other things, and I understand that. But I'm going to take a minute to address how absurd this is in a good way. Before the draft, I said I wanted a number two target for this Buffalo Bills team who could win in the short and intermediate routes because we had this long discussion about Gabe Davis and how he's not that guy. He's never been that guy. And I don't want all the targets to happen way downfield because it's going to lower the efficiency of your offense. I want the number two target getter to be somebody who wins short and intermediate. That's what the Bills got. Kincaid's wide receiver too. To say that I'll be upset if Dawson Knox comes back and Kincaid starts taking a backseat is an understatement. He's been playing 80 to 90% of the snaps. He should continue to play 80 to 90% of the snaps. He catches almost everything you throw to him. He wins versus zone. He's efficient. He moves the sticks. I understand we need more explosives. But you're not going to get those more explosive by throwing the ball more to Dawson Knox. Kincaid is absurd. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time. It is time for QB Stew. I got into the lab with Mrs. Nolan. We broke down QB Stew. We're going to go over it right now. I'm going to go ahead and just spoiler it right off the top. Just spoiler alert. Josh Allen's at number one right now. I'm going to go up from the bottom. Started from the bottom. Now we're here. Zach Wilson is 32. Bryce Young's 31. 30 is Daniel Jones, 29 is Mac Jones, 28 is Jimmy Garoppolo, 27 is Desmond Ritter, 26 is Ryan Tannehill, 25 is Kenny Pickett, 24 is Josh Dobbs, 23 is Jordan Love, Watson, Deshaun Watson's 22, Justin Fields is 21, Sam Howell is 20, Gardner Minshew is at 19, Matthew Stafford's at 18, 17 is Derek Carr, 16th is Geno Smith, 15th is Joe Burrow, 14th is Baker Mayfield, 13th is Russell Wilson, Trevor Lawrence is at 12, Justin Herbert's at 11, C.J. Stroud's at 10, Jared Goff's at 9, Jalen Hurts is at 8, Dak Prescott's at 7, Lamar Jackson's at 6, Patrick Mahomes is at 5, Kirk Cousins was at 4, Brock Purdy's at 3, 2 is at 2, Josh Allen's at 1. If the Bills were winning more, Josh Allen would be discussed as the MVP. That's the truth. He's first in QBR, eighth in passer rating, sixth in NEA, average net yards per attempt, second EPA per play, 
third in DVOA, first in PFF grade, and first in CPOE. It's not as crazy as some of the MVP seasons that we've seen before. Some of the other MVP seasons have QB stews in the high twos, maybe in the even low twos. So it's not as dominant of a season, statistically speaking, from a metric standpoint, as we saw from Aaron Rodgers when he was doing it, Patrick Mahomes last year, and so on and so forth, which means this is the year, I said it on social media, I'll say it here, if the season were to stop right now, I almost might put it on Tyreek Hill. Because you're not getting that singular dominant quarterback on a singular dominant team. And that's the only window you can open for a player who's not a quarterback to get the MVP. There's a lot of football left. But there's where Josh Allen is. Number one in QB stew. And this is the hilarious part. When I criticize Josh Allen for screwing something up, and then someone says, oh, it's all Josh Allen. No, I think Josh Allen's great. I just didn't like that play that he did. I didn't like this thing that he's doing. We just can't exist in this world for some reason. I don't know why. Like, we just can't exist in a world where someone could be great and also screwing up. We just, we can't do it. I don't know why. We need to. The world is too complicated for us to be that simple. We always want there to be simple solutions when the problems aren't simple, which is hilarious. Plurality pie. Buffalo Bills lost to the Cincinnati Bengals. Plurality pie is as follows. Ken Dorsey, 18%. Sean McDermott, 14%. I already talked about Dorsey. Now I'm going to talk about McDermott. I have a much bigger problem with Sean McDermott, the head coach, than I do with Sean McDermott, the defensive coordinator. Sean McDermott, the head coach, made a terrible final challenge. He made Puna Ford inactive and started Jordan Phillips at one tech. He had very little urgency on the last drive. And yes, that pace is something that is usually picked by the head coach. I have a much bigger problem with Sean McDermott, the head coach, than I do Sean McDermott, the defensive coordinator. Sean McDermott's game plan against Joe Burrow was weird. He blitzed a lot, and people are like wondering why he blitzed a lot. And that, that's not been the book on Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow has historically destroyed the blitz. I truly believe that Sean McDermott was forced to deal with substandard linebackers and said, if I have to use substandard linebackers, I'd rather minimize their weakness in coverage by having them run forward. He made a deserted effort and said, yes, blitzing Joe Burrow is not great, but having these particular linebackers in coverage against Joe Burrow might be worse. That's my, my logic for why the blitz heavy game plan, because you wouldn't think if everything's equal, you would want to do that. But when Terrell Bernard goes down early and you're dealing with Dorian Williams and Tyrell Dodson, I think you want those people running forwards. Even if that's not the best thing, it's better than the alternative, which is having them wander their way around in coverage. But yeah, I got problems with Sean McDermott, the head coach, against the Bengals. Wasn't happy with it. So, Ken Dorsey, 18%. Sean McDermott, 14%. Josh Allen, 11%. Gabriel Davis, 6%. I've been the same guy on Gabriel Davis the whole time. I've been the same guy the entire time. I like Gabriel Davis in a third or fourth role for an offense. He doesn't win in enough ways, often enough, for me to want him to be the number two target on this team. I want Dalton Kincaid to be the number two target on this team. And we're going to have to have a difficult conversation that maybe people aren't ready to have yet. Maybe they are because they're mad about re-signing Gabe Davis in the offseason. James Cook, 5%. 
I don't think James Cook was reading the field super well when he was running. I know he didn't get a lot of opportunities. I think that there's a reasonable chance this ends up being three men and Leonard Fournette's one of those people because they're not happy with James Cook and pass protection and he doesn't read the runs as well as they want him to. Osiris Torrance, 5%. Remember how I said before, sometimes when you get pressure, it's Josh Allen's fault. A couple times when you got pressure, it wasn't Josh Allen's fault. It was Osiris Torrance getting worked. Other 41%. So Dorsey, 18. Sean McDermott, 14. Josh Allen, 11. Gabriel Davis, 6. James Cook, 5. Osiris Torrance, 5. Other 41. Plurality, pie. We got emails to get to. Some of these emails I do think I addressed earlier, but we're going to go ahead and dive into them anyway. First one comes from Jeremiah Craig. He emailed me after the solutions episode two weeks ago and said, your episode last week laying out all the problems you noticed with the bills and your proposed solutions gave me a lot of perspective and increased my enjoyment watching the game. Your, my favorite part of your episode was when you explained how there are two plays coming out of the huddle, and then when you hear alert, alert, it means the play has been switched. I was watching the Bucks game on Thursday, and I saw exactly how this worked, and it worked well. My favorite example was when Josh Allen noticed something in the defense, changed the play, and then threw into an oncoming blitz to a wide-open digs for a first down. In my head, I was like, wow, Bruce called it. Anyway, thanks for giving us all the things to look out for in a game. It makes it a lot more fun understanding why things happen rather than just watching them happen. Keep it up, Jeremiah Craig. Jeremiah, thank you so much. I hope this one helps the way that one did. Christopher Nixon says, I've heard it said before, maybe by you, maybe not, that teams bust players more than players bust teams. I think this might be the case with Kyrie Elam. He was a press man corner with top physical skills. Buffalo plays a zone-based scheme that relies on players' sense of space and communication. We should not have drafted him and tried to shove his square peg into a round hole. We wasted our draft capital, and we wasted two years of his prime athleticism. Once we took him, the least we could have done is develop a plan to use him in a Meg style on chosen receivers in particular games. I suppose my question is, what, if anything, did we learn since the draft that we didn't know when we chose him in the first round? Why didn't we know this in the pre-draft process? This has been a talking point, and I'm glad you brought it up. There are no man-based systems in the NFL. None. There's no team out there that runs the overwhelming majority of their snaps in man coverage. On average, about two-thirds of every snaps that are taken in the NFL are taken against zone coverage. Now, obviously, some are more, but when you get a high man team, you're talking about like 35 38% man. A low man team is like 18% man. So Kyrie Elam was going to have to learn to play zone no matter where he went, more than man. The Buffalo Bills thought he could, and he didn't. That's what it boils down to so far with Kyrie Elam. Did I think that the Buffalo Bills were going to run a little bit more man, and that's one of the reasons why they picked him? Yeah, I absolutely thought that. I said it when I was on a show with Joe Marino immediately after the draft, and we were talking about who we would have taken, and I stayed with Kyrie Elam even though he wasn't my number one corner on the board at that time. He wasn't. Kyler Gordon was. And I said that in the pod. Why on earth would I take a player who wasn't the number one corner on my board at the time? And the answer was, I thought we were going to run more man. And I was like, okay, well, we're running a little bit more man. But no matter where he went, he was going to have to learn to play zone. An overwhelmingly large amount of zone. And he didn't. Which means I don't think that the opportunity for bust, if that's really the issue, which, let's be clear, we don't know if that's the actual issue because we have really, really, really small sample size 
of playing on Kyrie Elam. But let's assume for a second for the point of this argument that that was the reason. If that's the reason he was going to bust anywhere, because he was going to have to play zone the majority of the time anywhere he went. But there, what if there's another reason why he busted? What if he busted because, you know, the Bills didn't develop him correctly and they're bad teachers of defensive backs and things like, like Obviously, that's that, that's that too. That's an open possibility. Based on the other development of the other defensive backs that have existed under Sean McDermott, that feels unlikely. But I am much more willing to put the blame on Kyrie Elam than I am on the staff for this particular one. Because of that reason right there, because of what you just said. Yes, he was a man coverage corner coming out. He was going to have to learn to play zone no matter where he went, which means he was probably going to bust wherever he went. So I'm all about yelling at the staff for doing stupid things. I spent a long time already today yelling at Ken Dorsey for adding things and how you can't just run an entire offense one way. But this is not one of those things. Moving along, James says, Dear Bruce, the worst part about having a dog is that we are highly likely to outlive them. Maybe my favorite dog ever was my golden retriever named Micah that my ex-wife and I got shortly before we became parents. He was awesome, and I had to mourn losing him twice. Even though he was my dog, when my ex wanted a divorce when our kids were 10, 8, and 5, I left him with her to keep the house the kids had grown up in complete. It used to be so tough when I would go to pick up the kids, and Micah would look out the front door at me and give me sad looks. Then a few years later, my ex says it was time to put Micah down. I asked if I could be the one to take him to the vet and say goodbye. My then-girlfriend, now wife, picked him up, and he was so excited to see me that he didn't really seem that bad. My wife and I were wondering if my ex were maybe making the call too soon. But then we got to the vet, and the adrenaline had worn off, and it was clear that it was time. That was so hard, even though he really hadn't been my dog 24-7 for a few years. My wife had two miniature dachshunds, Tommy and Frankie, when we met. She's been jealous that they liked me so much, although initially it was a sign to her that I was a good guy to date. We had to put Tommy down a couple years ago, and Frankie has some medical stuff like every dog 10 years old. It'll be really tough when we have to put Frankie down. And I know my wife will want to get a new dog, and I'll want one ASAP. I do not do well with an empty home. So it's a long way to go to say I get it. I love the podcast this week, and forget the losers that don't understand the loving connection between dogs and humans. Thank you, James for that um my dogs are very special to me for those of you who who do not know uh, my wife and i do not have any children we wanted to have children but that was not that was not in the cards for us and dogs do not replace children at all but they do give you something to love that loves you back um and that matters i think having things in life that love you and having things in life that you love is important. In fact, I've said this before, but I'll say it now. I think the more things you love, the happier you are in life. I think the, the, the people who love the least amount of things, the people who have the narrowest path to loving things are usually unhappy, right? I only love this music and this art and these TV shows and this color, and these cars, and I only love these things. The more things you love, the happier you are, because the more likely you are to encounter something that you love, because you love more things. So anytime I have an opportunity to get something that I love, I'm going to sign up. And if it loves me back, bonus, baby. I love my dogs. 
The more people I meet, the more I love my dogs. Because I can love them and they can love me back. And that's all it has to be. It's just that simple transaction of I love you and you love me. And we're going to be friends. And I'm going to take care of you until we can't do it anymore. Until you tell me that you don't want to be here anymore. And you're weak and you're old and you're hurting. And you're tired. And you don't want to do it anymore. And then when that time comes, I'll still love you. Just in a different way. So... It's been a hard couple of weeks for me, for sure. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's been a week and a half already. The house still feels weird without the big one in it. Um, but thank you for your email. Joseph said, hello, Bruce. Like many fans, I'm frustrated right now with the team. I tried to do a stat dive to see if there's something to point out for the team's struggle. Sure, I wish that Josh Allen didn't have an interception in five straight games, but that isn't close to the whole picture. And so he brings up, the Bills are fifth in yards per game, third in points per drive, fifth in points per game, first and third down percentage conversions, second in total touchdowns, third in red zone touchdown percentage, second in point differential. Khalil Shakir is leading the NFL in catch percentage. Well, he is, but it, he only has 19 targets, so it, he doesn't hit the qualifier for a couple things. Dalton Kincaid is second in catch percentage if you eliminate running backs, which we already talked about. Defense is fifth in sacks. Week one to four, we were one of the highest ever recorded DVOA in history. Ed Oliver tenth is 10th among defensive tackles in pass rush win rate and third in run stop win rate. They're third in pass rush win rate. They're ninth in run stop win rate. They're fifth in pass block win rate. They're third in run block win rate. There's only three really bad stats. 17th in red zone touchdowns. Not great in the last three games. 17th in defensive yards per game. 26th in defensive yards per play. I found a couple stats here, he says, but they're, they're, they're poor, but it's strange. The Steelers have a negative 30-point differential and a better record. What gives? Well, a huge chunk of this was for you. The answer is they're not getting explosive plays. It ends up looking good on paper, but it ends up opening the door for more execution mistakes because you're not getting explosive plays. It's requiring you to have more plays to score a touchdown. We don't want that. That's why the offense looks bad. James says, Dear Bruce, I know you like a good analogy. As this Bills season comes along, I'm starting to evaluate the inevitable conversations about should the Bills move on from McDermott to conversations people have when an okay long-term relationship turns stale. Out of fear of entering into a cesspool that is the dating world, plenty of people stay in relationships that are merely okay. Some of the best arguments for keeping McDermott are that the Bills could do worse. And there's loads of coaches in NFL history that were good to greatest coordinator and bad as head coaches. Still, I saw this article about six years old, and it made me think. And he sends a, an article from 538. It was shared by Nate Geary as well on Twitter. And it says, why coaches and QBs should divorce after five years of not winning. So do you have any sort of rules of thumb when it comes to head coach becoming stale and a team needing to move on? I think if the Bills miss the playoffs with a relatively healthy Josh Allen, they need to move on. Okay, so it's hilarious because when I came into this year, I said that Sean McDermott was fine. I didn't have him as top five head coach. I didn't have him as a bottom 16 head coach. I had him right in the middle there. And I said he was good enough. And people who hated him hated me and people who loved him hated me because that's just the way it is when you're Bruce. The middle ground is a lonely place to be sometimes. I think he's fine. 
off the top of my head, I can't remember if I had him eighth or eleventh or ninth or something like that. It was it was in that range, but I did read that article from five thirty eight a while ago about how they've never had a situation where a coach and a quarterback were together and didn't win a title in the first couple of years, but then won one later on. And I don't love the methodology. I've just never loved it, ever. The sample size is really small because you're going through all of the head coach and quarterback combinations who have ever existed. And then of those, you have to take out the quarterbacks who have won a championship and then at what time they win it. They won it. That's a, I mean, you are, it's a needle in a haystack from a mathematical, from a metric standpoint. So of the 31 coaches to win at least one Super Bowl, 27 of them won their first championship within the first five seasons. Yeah, that's true. But you're now taking 31 head coaches out of hundreds and hundreds of head coaches. It's just, it's a needle in a haystack analogy from a metric standpoint. I just, I don't think it's good math. So I'm not opposed to the idea that we should talk about it because it, it's a it's a cool topic to talk about, you know, whether or not things get stale. I think that was a conversation with Andy Reid in Philadelphia. I think that's a, like, I understand that concept from a qualitative standpoint. I just think it's bad math. So we will deal with it when we get there, when it comes to Sean McDermott. They're not going to fire him during the year. So we will deal with that conversation when that happens. I told you it was going to be a, a big podcast. I did not think it was going to be an hour, but I'm sorry about that. I know that it's usually a little bit lighter. It's a little bit breezier. You don't have things like this happen. So I apologize ahead of time that it was this long, but I had a lot of stuff to get caught up on. But that's what happens when you do a podcast about your dog last week. You kind of fall behind on some stuff. So, Well, I guess I don't have anything else to say aside from that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rockets.